Welcome to Building Better Businesses, Stories of Decisive Action, a podcast dedicated to helping inspire and support businesses starting out on their sustainability journeys by learning from others who are already working towards becoming better. We're delighted to be joined today by David Ward, who is the founder and CEO of The Nurturing Company. Hi, David. Lovely to have you on the podcast Could you share a brief introduction to the nurturing company? How did the business come to be and what have you got in your pipeline for 2021 and beyond? Thank you very much, all of you, for the invitation to uh, share a bit more about uh, what we're doing and what we've been doing and and what we have planned. Um, The nurturing company really was the sort of, you know, uh, second version, really, for me in this sector, because I I started my first sustainable company uh, about eight years ago. Uh, here in Singapore, having um, spent almost most of my career in the fashion industry, <laughs> um, a bit of a jump, and, and prior to that, actually being an engineer. So I was I started my working life as a, a plastics engineer, oddly enough, uh, back in the UK, um, but moved across to uh, Asia uh, uh, eight years ago, having been working over here for some time, and and kind of almost stumbled into. Uh, the idea of of creating a sustainable business uh, at that period by uh, a rather sort of you know fluked meeting uh, in a bar <laughs> very late one night in in Tokyo. So in in Harajuku, I mean I'm coming coming into Asia. Uh, the guy I'm ultimately going to meet, who I don't know at this point, is called Albert. Runs a company in Canada called Kabu, which is very successful. Um, and uh, Albert was very excited to be sharing with me what he was doing. And um, we talked about the idea of my maybe helping them find some partners in Asia because I was working in, in brand licensing at that stage. Um, so cut a long story short, we kind of came back, looked into the market. Of course, at that stage, there wasn't any sustainable products here in Singapore. In fact, there was almost no sus- talk of sustainability at, at all, uh, which proved to, to be a problem later on for us as we were looking for investment. Um, but at that stage, it was very much a question of looking at how we could identify the opportunity and what we could do with the guys from Kabu and how that might work. Ultimately, in the end, it was going to require too much change, really, to their product packaging, you know, uh, pack sizes, this kind of thing. So um, I decided I would create another brand, you know, as one does. And, uh, and I created a brand called No Trees, which most people might know if they're uh, by uh, sustainable products. So that was really the first one to be made available in, in Singapore. Um, but I was, you know, fairly new here and didn't really know anybody. And to be honest, no one was really that interested in discussing sustainable products. Um, most people were even surprised you could make toilet paper out of bamboo at that stage. Um, so that was always the first kind of part of it, most conversations. Um, but honestly, people didn't really know what was going on. The the uh, social media um, feed, you know, that we see almost every day, different stories. Now that really wasn't there at that stage. It was it was quite a rare sight to see anything um, uh, being talked about. Um, and I decided that that would be you know somewhere for me to focus my attention. Having grown up in an in an Irish household where we had no garden and all we had was a vegetable patch most of my uh, teenage life um, and living with a father who was adamant, you know, turn the lights off, save the water, 
you know, even we saved our rainwater, everything. We, you know, it was a very uh, um, self-sustaining lifestyle. My father's name is Tom and uh, was often referred to as being a bit like Tom out of The Good Life for those that may have ever watched The Good Life uh, way back when on the BBC. Um, and I, I decided at that stage that really it was an opportunity for me to focus all the things I'd learned from some great people um, throughout my career and try and focus it on something which um, had a much more deeper meaning to me um, and where I saw an opportunity. And I guess really throughout my working life, that's probably been one of the good, you know, I say two things I'm quite good at. I've hired really good people. Um, and the other one is seeing the gaps, seeing the opportunity maybe before others do. So I decided to sort of throw my, my shoulders in behind this, unknowing at the stage, of course, that nobody else was going to be interested, um, and started to go out and bang my drum. Eventually found uh, the great people over at FJ Benjamin, actually, um, who decided that they would, uh, as a family, would like to back the idea. But it obviously meant that I would have to give up ownership at that stage, which I did, because it was very much more about actually making it happen than, uh, than owning it, really. Um, Ultimately, that, that business was then sold on to uh, Lamson, who still own it, um, and I moved across. But at that stage, I really felt that I was um, needed to do more, really. It was a question of, you know, either staying with the brand I created or following the ideology of why I first created it. So, you know, I slept on, the, on that thought and, and came up the next morning and told my wife I was resigning and that I was going to start again. And I was, you know, she thought I was a bit crazy. I was 54 then, I think. Um, and, um, and left, left the, the baby behind, basically. And um, set up the nurturing company. And I'd already kind of decided that we would create our own brand and that we would have no plastics. We really started with a blank sheet of paper uh, and worked with a number of suppliers uh, to identify how we could overcome the issue of not wanting to use particularly plastics in packaging because that was the biggest single thing that you know during that early uh, journey that it became very recognizable that it was great having sustainable products on offer to the consumer for probably the very first time but they're all still wrapped in plastic and it this plastic was actually a longer problem for uh, the environment than, than you know whether we were choosing trees or whether we were choosing uh, bamboo or other fibers. So that was our first sort of remit really, the blank sheet of paper basically said, you know, re reduce or remove as much one-time use plastics whenever and wherever possible in society and the environment. That's what we started with. Um, and we worked through the problems for about five months with our various different suppliers. Uh, working on our own brand and then you know a little bit of luck came our way that I was contacted by um, a lady from Florida who'd also created her own brand in the United States that brand is Bamboo Lou so Bamboo Lou was born in the United States um, and she'd spent a lot of money she got it you know very good piece of marketing behind it and branding and spent a lot of money on, on uh, trademarking it um, and was really trying to launch, you know, from our own website in the United States, you know, a, a deliver to your door uh, subscription model. Um, but she was a single mom, still is, um, um, but it was uh, proved to be too difficult for various different family reasons. Um, she wasn't able to continue to do that. So she reached out to me as somebody in our industry to see whether I could help 
find somebody to buy that company. Um, I asked around the people that I knew, um, you know, both in the US and over here, but we couldn't find anybody that was interested at the level that she was looking for. So I kind of left it and hunkered down back on our own tasks. Uh, and then around a month, five weeks later, um, I got a, a sort of a slightly bizarre email one morning saying, I'm having a fire sale. I've just got to get rid of it or I've got to get it off my plate. The problems in the family have required my full attention. Um, you know, so I said, well, let's have a call. We had a call. Uh, and it really was, you know, kind of offload to get rid of everything as quickly as she could so she could move on with the issues that she was facing. Um, so we struck a deal for 24 hours. And I say for 24 hours because um, having then gone back and thought about the deal, which was basically us taking over that the assets of that company for a very small amount of uh, uh, money, um, it just didn't really feel very right. It didn't feel right that I would be, in a sense, taking her baby away from her before it really had time to grow and develop. And um, so I sent back a message saying, you know, I'm not feeling so good about this. You know, how about uh, this is a proposition? Um, and we did a thing called an equity for asset swap where we gave her equity in what was going to be the new company, the, the, the Nurturing Co, which at that stage had no, no revenue at all. Um, and the, the uh, assets of the, the brand, Bamboo Loo and everything would move into the nurturing company. And, and for us being a fledgling company, still putting its own brand together, this was going to be a, you know, a real big you know, step up because we would have a brand that would already be trademarked all over the world. We had a little bit of stock available to us um, and we had some very well thought through branding, which had been put together by uh, a quite large uh, agency in Paris. So that's what we agreed. And I'm very happy to say that Lara is still, uh, still has a, her percentage of the company um, and it is probably moving close to being of equal value now to what she'd originally invested. Um, and uh, yeah, I slept a lot better after that because it, was, it just felt wrong to sort of take it for a song, really. That wasn't really my, didn't really sit very well with me. Uh, and at that stage, it was just me. So uh, um, as we moved into 20, late 2018, we managed to get our first product delivered out to our first customer, which is uh, the good people over at Unpacked. They were our first delivery. Um, and I do remember the morning uh, after we finally made, made it go live on Redmart as well. Um, I, I flipped the switch, I don't know, about seven o'clock one evening when I got the email saying, yeah, all your products are now listed and made them live, uh, turned the phone on the next morning and we had orders. And, and so we've had orders every day ever since. So uh, thank you very much to all the people in Singapore who support us. Um, and we've done that, I think, with a, with a minimal amount of uh, advertising and, and uh, advertising and marketing spend, um, basically because we didn't have any money, really. Um, so I, I, at that stage, I managed to uh, lock horns with uh, uh, Walter, Walter On, who is the CEO of, of Box Screen. Uh, we were actually at a, a B Corp meeting. That's where he and I first met. Um, and, um, and we became sort of a bit like magnets, really. The more we talked, the closer we got, the, you know, kind of self, you know, connecting and to the point where Walter became, you know, a part of the, the sort of initial founding team beyond myself. Um, along with um, uh, Greg, who works uh, at one of the major banks here in Singapore. Um, and they, they put a little bit of money on the table and that managed to keep us moving through, you know, the sort of hand-to-mouth period of 
of 2019, whilst we were sort of, you know, bringing product in and selling it really fast and then bringing some more in and selling it even faster and, and really kind of chasing our tails really for most of the year. Um, and, uh, and of course, absolutely zero money from in my pocket. Uh, at the time, because everything was tied up in the in the company, which is you know very very common, uh, um, you know storyline for any entrepreneur really who's, who's going out and doing something. You've really got to you know, I I always tell people it's a bit like uh, you've got to be ready to commit to jump out of the plane and get the parachute on before you hit the floor. It isn't about jumping out of a plane with a parachute. That's easy. Anyone could do that. Uh, but it is jumping out of the plane and chasing the parachute down and getting it on your back and safely opening it before, you know, either you run out of money or or your your deadline arrives where, you know, you can't sustain and carry on. At some stage, you, you know, that, that pulling of the ripcord really is when you get a break, you know, and hopefully that break comes in one form or another and you're able to sort of, you know, pull the nose up and, and, and sail for a little bit longer. Um, until you're able to, you know, maybe get some more wind under your sail, which would obviously be more investment or more money, which we were lucky enough to be able to do at the end of 2019, uh, with all the great expectations that 2020 was going to be a wonderful year for us all. Um, and, you know, our plan was to launch, I think, seven or eight different products for 2020. So we were sort of, you know, well under the way of getting the development uh, going. And then, of course, uh, the situation that we're still living with right now, COVID arrived. And we had that very, very crazy weekend in, in uh, Singapore, as we'd seen in Australia and in Hong Kong, where everybody went uh, toilet roll crazy. Um, the interesting point about that was when before COVID, when I used to say to people, and they go, oh, what do you do for a living? And I go, I make toilet paper. And they go, oh, because uh, they really didn't know what to say at that stage. Um, whereas now, when you, you know, oh, what do you do for a living? Oh, I make toilet, I make toilet roll. Oh my god! You know that everybody's now got some kind of story in a sense that you know about that period of time. Um, but we sold, I think it was almost five months worth of product in sixteen hours, which was you know bonkers, really. Um, and uh, we managed to deliver all that and got, got all of our deliveries out to all of our customers over that period of, uh, of that following week. Um, it left us very short of, of stock and, and at, a, at a time when most of the factories were still down in China because of the uh, uh, situation there. Um, and it took us about, uh, I think it was almost May before we got toilet rolls back into stock in Singapore. Um, and in that period, we, of course, did as a lot of businesses did. We had to sort of like pivot around and look at what else we could do. Um, and we had planned, you know, things like antibacterial wipes and sanitizers, but they were further down the line in our uh, development pipeline at that stage. So we pulled those forward. That managed to, We managed to source the uh, sanitizer in Singapore. It's one of the few uh, food-grade sanitizers. Um, and again, because of the deep relationship, which I, I built up over a number of years before already with our supply base in, in uh, China, um, was able to turn on getting the, the wipes done in literally about two weeks. You know, normally that's a three month cycle to get done. But, you know, the situation was they wanted to do me a favor, which they did. And it, and it really, really helped us. Um, so that managed to keep us kind of, you know, rolling through. Uh, 2020, um, where we continued then on with the development of new products. So we introduced kitchen roll, we introduced tissues, uh, which both of those were pushed back because of the demands on factories for toilet rolls. So they, we, we had to juggle the timelines a little bit. 
Um, and during this period of time, we also were looking at what else we could do. And I was adamant that I thought I could make a, a good mask out of bamboo, out of bamboo fabric. Um, but I, I was really trying to do that 100% out of bamboo, which turned out not to be possible for it to have really positive uh, performance level. And so we were working with a, a factory um, on experimenting with different combinations of materials. Um, and we settled on one which has turned out to be um, probably unbeknownst to us at the time, um, quite ideal for this kind of a product. And that's the combination of cotton, silk, and bamboo. The, the mechanical properties of these three materials when combined uh, make for a very, very efficient filtering system. In fact, it's a BFE 95 rated filter mask, which is as good as a KN95 or the N95 that you might see. Um, but it's, it's um, I won't go into the exact details because it's it, why it doesn't have exactly the same rating, but uh, that's more to do with medical requirements than anything else. Um, and, and this was a shock to us because we were thinking, well, maybe we could get 80% efficiency. That would be pretty good for a, a reusable mask that had no plastic in it and no plastic packaging. Um, and, um, and, and that would be pretty cool. And so when we put it in for testing and it came back with 95, we were like blown away. Um, so the NAT mask uh, first came out, uh, we launched it at the, around November last year. And it was kind of like an, an immediate, as soon as you put it on and tried it, you knew exactly that that was the one that was going to work, having gone through, I think at that stage, 12 different versions of masks that just never quite felt right. That was the one that, when that combination of, you know, very, very good breathability, um, that was the right kind of fit. Uh, and then when we put it in for the testing, it came back, you know, remarkably high, much higher than we thought. We've since learned a lot more about that. And <clears throat> MIT actually did a test on those combinations of fabrics because they're also being used by um, some filter masks in the United States. And they, they, call it, they call it the golden triangle of natural materials in terms of filtration. It really is very good. So we finally got all of our products out during 2020, much to our great surprise. Um, and... Uh, we were looking to launch into the UK, which kind of came off the rails, really, with Brexit and uh, everything else that's been going on over there and COVID really not playing a, a great part in that. But we had been looking to raise money through Cedars over there, through a, a funding platform. Um, and we'd been, we sort of you know, reached our goal um, and we're at the stage of you know, trying to organise getting the final components of, of getting the business set up properly in the UK, but but just constantly coming up against hurdles. And the the storyline now, you know, which is quite well known now that, you know, basically UK is on its own away from Europe meant that, you know, utilizing the UK as a sort of a beachhead for Europe really wasn't going to be something we could do. But we were kind of committed to that. So here we are, it's, it's, you know, we're still in the COVID situation. It's now kind of, I think at that stage, late February, March this year. Um, and um, I'm a great avid user of LinkedIn and I'm on LinkedIn late one night as is I'm often doing. And, and I see a post from um, the CEO of Razor, Minling Tan, talking about their new office, which is about to open. Um, or is actually they they just moved in quite recently now, and I was kind of fishing for business really. So I sent him a message saying it'd be great to be able to share what we do. Maybe we could supply your team and and help you, you know, become even greener in your new green building. 
Um, and you know, would that be possible? And I got a very nice, you know, message back saying, yeah, I'll be, I'll be really interested. I'll put you in contact with the team. And oh, and by the way, we're we're actually beginning to look at some possible investment in sustainable companies. So I thought, well, it's no harm in asking. Um, and okay, well, that's very interesting. What are you looking to do? And and so began. A, I guess about a ten-day conversation, you know, backwards and forwards, shared what we what was going on with uh, Cedars, what we were thinking about doing in the UK, and and Min was super super uh, um, helpful, gave me his you know, points of view and, and opinions on these things, and um, we kind of got through the, the the cycle of conversation, and the last message was, well, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll get my team to to close this off, and I'm thinking, well, does that mean that they want to? work with us or or does that mean that this kind of conversation is finished um so i shared this then with 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 walter and then walter was kind of blown away and and really surprised and i said no, actually i i know on the outside and then i spoke to a few people they really couldn't see the parallels at all uh, until the news of razor and z z ventures uh, green fund came out and they really have made a major commitment to uh helping sustainable companies i think of most of the large tech companies at that point that were sort of banding around how much they were going to commit to, you know, kind of green fund investing. Um, I think Razor's, you know, pound for pound is probably the largest, larger example um, compa- in comparative to their, to their revenue, if you like. Um, and, and we were going to be the first in that uh, um, uh, uh, new fund. Um, and, um, and, and, we were obviously completely blown away, but for me, it was very, very much about the opportunity to work with a partner strategically that was in was engaged in a predominantly D to C business, which they are, um, and as a business, they have a major footprint in the United States in terms of uh, the numbers of people that they that they uh, have as as players and how many you know their, their rev- overall revenue generally. Fifty percent or more, I think, comes from the United States. So it was a, you know, it's like having a, you know, big brother with a lot of success who knows the the journey, you know. So the intangible value of having somebody like Razor for a company like us is is equally as important as the amount of funding that they were going to put in. And of course, we're 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 still a small business, so we weren't looking for a lot of money. We took less money than they wanted to put on the table, but we just took enough to get us to where we need to be for the next stage of our development. Um, and that really brings us to, to where we are today, which is we will be launching a, a proper funding round uh, next week or towards the end of next week as we look at launching into the United States. And the byproduct of having Razor as a major partner has resulted in us gaining a lot more notoriety uh, becoming known to people like Amazon and the Launchpad program in the United States, which we will launch with, um, and it's and, and changing the profile of the company almost overnight, really. Thank you, David. Thank you, David, for sharing how Nurturing Co came to be, and congratulations on the launch of a fundraising round uh, very soon. There is obviously been a lots of twists and turns and learning along the way. Least to say that the last two years has made it all more interesting. So can you share with us a little bit about what have been the biggest impacts on your business over the last couple of years? How have you responded to these impacts? Well, I'm going to say that the biggest single problem that we as a business faced um, 
and I was saying most companies, if they make a product, face, and and that's funding your supply chain. Um, you know, when you're selling things and and your business is growing, it's it, it's great. It feels wonderful, but but it actually creates another bigger problem for you, which is how do I fund the next round of product because my 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 burn rate is increasing, you know, as I'm selling faster, and but I'm probably not getting paid any faster. And, you know, my margin's not going to be, you know, it's not like a tech margin. It's not like double, triple, you know, uh, the, the, the build cost. So I might have a margin of, you know, um, gross margin of anything between 40 and 60%. Um, and I've got to run my company through that. So I'm probably, you know, topping out at, you know, 15, 18% net. Um, and I've got to fund my next purchase of product through this. And this was always a constant uh, problem that took most of my money in 2019 doing this. Um, so uh, for us, the, the greatest piece of news in the last three years uh, was finally managing to get a facility in place with uh, um, uh, DBS, who we've, we've been banking with since we started, um, you know, where it allows us to to, to fund the, the supply chain independently of the day-to-day uh, function and operational costs. So I think that's a major issue in Asia. Uh, if I were in the United States, I could use a platform like Kickfervor, for instance, that is a crowdfunding for wholesale brands, basically. Such a thing doesn't exist here. So you're really either going to be self-funding it through your own pocket, or if you've got a lot of investors' money, and this happens a lot, people invest, use the investment money to buy product, which is a really, really expensive way to be buying your product. But if you're growing quickly, you can't actually fund it fast enough. And it should outstrip the available cash quite quickly. It has to, it has to run on its own cycle. So that, that was our largest issue. Um, obviously, during the beginning of COVID, you know, our own supply chain was impacted by, by regulatory requirements that, that all factories were going through in China. Um, all the bamboo brands that you see around the world all make their product in China. So we, we, all, we were all in the same basket uh, at that time. Um, that thankfully settled down quite quickly after the new regu- regulations were put in place. And in fact, because um, paper and pulp factories tend to have stricter codes of uh, um, health and safety anyway because of uh, paper particle, dust particles, etc. in the air, and they were already, you know, fairly well along the road of, um, you know, uh, let's say, uh, you know, w- w- worker health issues that then comparative to to maybe some other industries. And the whole bamboo industry about three years ago had gone through some major upheavals in terms of environmental coding improvements, um, you know, right across uh, the sector in China. And so that hasn't really represented a, a bigger issue for us not going to be able to see them currently um, is a big problem for me because I really love going to see them. It's great to be able to go to the factory and see everybody, spend time with them, share what we're thinking about doing, experiment, you know, uh, you know, on some new ideas uh, that we're thinking of doing and, and, and seeing some of the innovations that they're also working on. Um, and the, you know, the relationships, uh, you know, like whether it's, extended family you know we're, we're not we're feeling parted unnecessarily in a way um, but we've all got to sort of like tough it out and hopefully uh you know early next year we'll be able to go back and and spend some you know good quality hours with them 
But in terms of, you know, um, our development overseas, which is obviously a you know, big major part of what we're trying to do, you know, Singapore is a great place to test product. It's a great place for us to be as a business. But, you know, it is a small place, you know, so, so we do have to look at the scalable markets where we believe there is a equally large proportion or proportion of, of the population interested in sustainable products or sustainable consumption. And, but obviously the, the, it's the, the number is just much bigger because the, the market audience is much greater. So we had looked at the UK. We'd actually built product at the factory, got it all ready to go uh, just before uh, COVID struck. And then all the wheels really came off that wagon. Um, freight prices went skyrocketing. It was one of the reasons why we wouldn't take the the funding in from Cedars at that stage to pursue delivering into the UK because it would have meant almost all the money that investors were putting on the table at that time would have been burnt up in freight costs. It was really silly high. It's still very, very high right now. Um, and you know, Brexit itself had basically blocked any opportunity that we thought we may have had of using UK as a platform into um, Europe. Um, and, and we just ran into walls too many times. So it was, you know, we kind of, you know, before the razor conversation, before Min gave me his, you know, his, his sort of wider view of, of what we possibly could be doing in the world. Um, you know, we were sort of like, you know, kind of going, damn, that was, we were ready to roll. You know, we've, we've still got some stock sitting at the factory in China that, that was earmarked to go to the UK. Um, but now now we've, we've, in a sense, opted to look at moving our first major push overseas uh, into an even bigger market, which is the US. Um, and, and that in part has come about because we've been very fortunate to have had um, some good conversations with the Amazon team in Seattle uh, for their Launchpad program that they have running, um, and also their um, climate-friendly um, product team as well. Um, and you know, for us, this is a huge opportunity to be able to work with uh, those guys. And we have a great advisory company working with us who help companies launch on Amazon called uh, AMZ Advisors. Um, so we, we're giving ourselves, I believe, the best opportunity to succeed in the United States, even against the backdrop of difficulties that we've, you know, the, the world has faced, um, and you know, we as a business have faced. But you know, you you have to you have to know when to let go. In a sense, you know, I come from UK. I know the market very well. I know our products will sell very well there. But just too many too many fences for us to climb at this stage and we're too small um, and at that stage we didn't have the banking facility that we had now so we were kind of like well if we do this we've got to be all in you know to make it work so you know we, we if we'll we'll come back to that you know at a, at a stage of time but at the moment you know we are um, very very focused on on getting ourselves ready to try and have products on the ground in the United States before the end of October. It's really inspiring to hear how you've navigated some of the challenges over the last couple of years. And it sounds like you've got some really exciting times ahead of you, which is fantastic. One of the challenges that sustainable products often face is the perception and sometimes the reality that they're more expensive than non-sustainable products. How have you managed that challenge? And do you feel um, that now that more sustainable products are coming on the market, that that is having a positive impact on price. I think there's, there's, there's a couple of points of consideration on this. 
you know, for a very, very long time, anything that was deemed to be organic, natural, etc. Um, yeah, you, we were just being scalped. Simple as that. There was no need. You know, we were we, we were being we were being marketed to, and we were paying for our guilt. You know, and and I fundamentally disagree with that approach to business. I always have done. You know, when we started No Trees, we started with the same philosophy that we would have to be as close as we possibly could be to the current, you know, pricing of that product in the marketplace. Um, and it's the same with, with Bamboo Lou, both here and in Malaysia and in New Zealand, where, where the product is available. Um, we are, we are market, market sensitive to the price points which the consumer is paying for similar products. It isn't about sort of sitting on your, on your, um, your high table and saying, you know, we believe we are valued at this. We're a commodity product company. Our um, position is to try to create products which are both sustainable and less impacting alternatives to the current traditional model available. Um, and that's really one of the sort of the binding, you know, uh, pillars behind any product that we we create and bring to the marketplace. It has to be effective. It has to be pretty close in terms of pricing. So if we look at Bamboo Lou currently, if you walk into cold storage, we're on par with the other bamboo brands that are available. All of the bamboo brands cost a little bit more than the wood pulp brands, but then the wood pulp brands are not in the same game that we're in. They're in a space war between each other, um, looking for somewhere for their product to go because they're burning down half of Indonesia to do it. You know, so they're, they're, they own their supply chain, that's their model. They've sold it to themselves three or four times before it even got to the retailer. They've made their margin. Now they just need space on a shelf to keep pushing it out. And they're in a, you know, a, a space war in terms of, you know, uh, aisle space, you know, between themselves. They're, their ROI is a very different approach to, to any of the, let's call them the niche brands which exist, regardless of what sector is, it's all the same really. Um, but for us, it was always, you know, very important that we stay in touch with the pricing. So when we look at the pricing of our product, particularly, we try and give uh, choices of pack sizes, particularly that will um, allow the consumer to gain more advantage in terms of pricing. So by the time the customer gets to buying our 36 roll box, which is our most successful uh, um, online selling product, so 36 uh, rolls of toilet roll in, in a box. When they're buying that at the price that they're paying for it and getting it delivered to them within 24 hours rather than five days or three days, depending on which service you might be using, um, they're probably paying per sheet about the same as they would be paying for an average wood pulp toilet roll, let alone the sort of the top tier ones where even our retail you know, pack the uh, the grab bag with you know, has no plastic with a handle. You can carry the product straight out of the store. And um, even that isn't the most expensive. None of the bamboo brands are actually the most expensive toilet rolls in the market in Singapore. There's there's Kleenex products and other products which are even more expensive. And um, so you know, we, I think most of the the brands in Singapore at least um, operate very much on on be, being as close as possible to. Uh, the current sort of consumer um, demand pricing and and you know uh, wood pulp has become more expensive you know we found prices creeping up slightly 
uh, and and bamboo and sugar uh, sugarcane particularly has gone up in pricing a lot in in China and bamboo went through a pricing increase about two years ago and has been holding fairly steady since then you know per, per cubic ton and so we're able to sort of you know pin out quite well uh, you know our pricing uh, model and when we look at the US and we just did the comparison yesterday we're, we're, we're actually slightly cheaper per sheet than most of the other bamboo brands that are out there but that's also possibly about the way we approach our business you know objectively we're looking to try to encourage as many people to change we just gave away 10,000 toilet rolls for free in uh, with various different retail partners um, um, during July and August um, to encourage people to try it you know because some people oh I'd, I'd like to try it but I'm not going to buy eight in case I don't like it so here's an opportunity you know you get a free roll of toilet roll take it home try it you know, maybe you'll like it, maybe you won't like it, maybe you'll buy our brand, maybe you'll buy another bamboo brand. But objectively, the, you know, the, the thought was, because it's a very personal thing, even though it's a very basic thing, toilet roll. Um, we, we tend to stay with the brands that we grow up with mostly. Um, so we need to do something unusual to try and break that habit. Um, and it seemed like a sensible thing to do to give people a roll to try. Um, and uh, it seems to have worked because we, we definitely picked up new customers uh, from that. Thank you, David. What would, what would be your advice to other entrepreneurs considering starting out looking to grow a sustainable business? Well, I think the, the key thing really is to ensure that whatever product or service um, that you're looking to do, that you believe that you are able to do it end-to-end, um, you know, from initial design through to, you know, what if you're if you're a product, what's actually happening with the, the product or materials, you know, post-consumer use. And um, that you are going to be able to offer an alternative to what is already there, um, which is as good or better, uh, as well as the fact it is sustainable. There's no, there's no value in saying we've got the most sustainable something in the world, um, if it costs three times as much and, um, you know, leaves behind a lot of packaging, which is, you know, no better than anything else. You know, certainly the industry started in that vein, you know, uh, particularly the, the pulping industry, being able to create alternatives to wood pulp product, um, which uses, you know, significantly less amounts of water in production, like 90% less water, for instance. Um, and needs, you know, uses far, far less uh, um, carbon throughout its life as well. So, of course, there were some great plus points to buying bamboo toilet roll versus trees and helping us mitigate the, you know, 27,000 trees a day, which still get cut down every day, um, to make uh, wood pulp toilet roll around the world. Um, but actually figuring out how to not leave... Um, or to be able to manufacture that product in a in a manner which is considered from an energy sourcing perspective and um, from a deliverable perspective to your given market, to the waste materials or packaging which may be left on the consumer's hands, you know, once they've actually finished with your product. Um, you know, you can't just go, I've got a great idea, let's make a great product. Um, you know, and I think I can you know, be, be better or, or my story's better or my brand is better. Um, and once you do have something, um, consider that it's not right. Consider that you've just done the first version um, and just keep iterating with your customer by listening to your customer 
um, by being very, very open and very transparent with them, which, you know, on our side we are. We, we encourage as much feedback from people as we can. Um, it isn't always good. You know, you have to understand that not everybody's going to love what you do or love what you change. You know, the majority might say, go left. So you go left and then some people on the right go, oh, I really don't like that. I liked it when it was like this. That's all inevitable. It's always going to happen. But, um, you know, by, by listening to what your consumer is saying and telling you about what you're doing right now, then you've got a good fighting chance of being able to improve that. And, um, and they, that starts to also build a degree of advocacy. And when you're a small business um, and you haven't got a lot of money, <laughs> we still don't um, to splash around on on big adverts and and you know uh, um, you know we, we, actually we, we don't even have a burn rate I mean you know you, you hear these terms thrown around you know what's your burn rate oh, no idea you know we, we have some staff that we employ um, but in terms of you know spending money on marketing we're, we're very cagey and very cautious about that because we we believe that the the right approach to it really is to try to build through advocacy build through um uh, referral or or um you know getting reviews um which you know is, is not so easy actually in singapore it, it took us some time to figure out a model which really works for us um, and we've you know in this last few months we've been seriously blown away by some reactions from some consumers to the products that we make um, and, it, and it's it's very very uh, um, appreciated, and it and it it validates everything that you've gone through when somebody says that it makes a difference to their life. Um, something as simple as some of the things that we actually make. Um, so, knowing what you're doing, deciding what you're going to do, but realizing that you're just beginning, and that you haven't got the, all the answers, um, and be humble. I guess, you know, um, being older and starting a business, yeah, you know, some people think it's a bit mad, a bit crazy, um, you know, because you really shouldn't you be winding down and resting more and sleeping more and all the rest of it. But but it does give you, uh, I think, a different kind of uh, ability to not put your ego in front of things. Um, when you're a bit younger, it's a bit, it's, you know, and I was, no doubt I was the same when I was younger. And, um, you know, trying to be headstrong. I'm right. You know, in in the great world of the consumer marketplace, you, you, the consumer is right. So if the consumer likes what you're doing, um, then try to learn from that. Just, you know, it isn't about, you know, creating a cash cow approach. It's about what else can I do to improve what we already have? You know, is everything that we're doing, um, does everything work the way that we thought it worked when it's finally in your hands? Um, and you know that's been a, a learning curve which has led us to things like you know not wrapping the individual toilet rolls inside the bag which we did when we first started so logically people go hang on a bit it's, it's in a bag so why do I need it, them wrapped that's just not a bad idea actually so so we did a quick poll and uh, um, it came back just in you know tipped across to keep the wrapping um, in the uh, 36 roll and then not have them wrapped in the bag. And then lo and behold, about eight months later, I get an email from a customer saying, oh, I thought I was buying the ones with the wraps because my first ones had wraps. So you can't always keep everybody happy. Um, but but that saved us you know, resources. And that's how most people are looking at it. You know, it doesn't necessarily need the wrapping. It's a bit of a waste of you know time. You know, we actually had 
people that were collecting them and using them for, for the other wrappings. And um, then we got into conversations with our customers about our boxes. You know, hey, could you guys maybe collect the boxes back? And we went, absolutely, we could. So then we work with uh, a team um, I call uh, Cycle Up here in Singapore. So we have, are working with them to identify. So they basically are someone to go to if you're looking for different kinds of resources, but but you haven't got any money to buy them, like packaging, wrapping paper, this kind of stuff. So so we basically collect as many boxes back as we can, keep them at our DC, and then then over a period of time, um, those guys will come and pick some up when they need them and, and they'll be you know given a second life um, in the same way that you know some people have asked to take back our grab bags the same thing and even the toilet roll holders the bits in the middle which are something we would love to live without completely but that isn't the norm uh, here in Singapore or in most of the Western markets so in certain markets like the Philippines and in China um, also they use cordless or center pull uh, toilet rolls most of the time, but but in in most of the markets we're operating in, it's still a cord product. So yeah, we collect those back also. So these things all get get come out of conversations with the customer. You know why we will introduce a new version of our antibacterial wipe has come from conversations with our customers. And um, so you know, yes, you can launch something. Yes, it can be great, but. It actually can be better if you listen. So that's always my biggest thing for people. Don't have an ego. You know, spend what you have, not what you can get. Um, and and listen more than you speak. I always have a phrase I use for people, which is, I learn nothing when I speak. So I try and keep my ears open and listen to others. Wise words indeed, David. And some great tips there for our listeners Thank you so much, David Ward, founder and CEO from The Nurturing Company.